1: Hi there and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. The thing I want to talk today about is the relationship from 1939 to 1940 between Franklin Roosevelt and Neville Chamberlain. Um, Obviously an awful lot is made about the relationship between Roosevelt and Churchill and this is uh, the primary uh, transatlantic relationship of the war but it's not the first one. And the relationship that exists between Roosevelt and Chamberlain and Delatier in France is not insignificant in its own right and generally tends to get slightly overlooked. So we're going to look into that and examine the period um, 1939 uh, to 1940 um, when Roosevelt was grappling with the almost intractable problem of neutrality. So, the book I'm looking at mainly at the moment is uh, Freedom from Fear by uh, David Kennedy, uh, and it's part of a series of The Oxford History of the United States, um, edited by the great C. Van Woodward. Um, so, as we know, on the 1st of September 1939, Hitler invades Poland. Two days later, um, Hitler um, rejects um, an ultimatum by Britain and France to withdraw. And Chamberlain uh, announces, along with Deladier in France, uh, that the uh, two countries are at war with Germany. Um, Roosevelt is listening to all this um, in Washington, and on the 1st of September, he uh, said that he hoped that all sides would be able to refrain from uh, bombardment from the air of civilian populations of unfortified cities. Um, and this really um, underlined a kind of a decade of anxiety uh, about air power, terror of um, air power, which had been um, highlighted by um, attacks in, by the Italians in Abyssinia, uh, by the uh, German uh, Condor Legion uh, aircraft in uh, Spain during the Spanish Civil War, and then uh, by the Japanese in uh, China in 1937 and 1938. Um On the 3rd, Roosevelt um, took to the radio in his uh, weekly fireside chat, saying, Until 4.30 o'clock this morning, I'd hoped against hope that some miracle would prevent a devastating war in Europe and bring to an end uh, the invasion of Poland by Germany. Um, this nation will remain... A neutral nation. And he said that, I cannot ask that every American remain neutral in thought as well. Even a neutral cannot be asked to close his mind and his conscience. Um, this is in stark contrast to Woodrow Wilson, who in 1914 said that he thought that um, Americans should be impartial in thought as well as action. Americans were overwhelmingly in favour of Great Britain and France. Um, 84% um, came out in favour of them, A uh, polled by Gallup in October 1939, and only 2% um, favoured Germany. Roosevelt, of course, had um, sympathies towards uh, Britain and France. Um, He had a a deep loathing of the Nazi regime. But the question was, how would he be able to translate these sympathies into positive action for um, Britain and France? In January 1939, Roosevelt had laid out a policy called Methods Short of War. So doing everything possible short of actual fighting to help democratic powers against the threat of Nazism. The, uh, this would later translate into the Arsenals of Democracy speech where essentially Roosevelt was saying that uh, in order for um, liberty to be preserved, um, America would have to provide the munitions for countries like Britain and France to do the fighting with um, because the fall of Europe would leave um, America hopelessly exposed. So um, in the 1st of September, Roosevelt um, says to his um, cabinet and to um, the War Department um, that there would be no American intervention in the war and that um, the War Department proposes uh, building an army of three quarters of a million men, um, which would have um, tripled um, the size of the army um, or quadrupled it almost. Um, and he said that, well, you know, you can build as an army as big as you like, but it is staying in this hemisphere. It will not be going to Europe. It stays in the Americas. Um, and the uh, this didn't mean that Roosevelt was going to do uh, nothing. Um, he believed that air power would be the answer. Now, there is a fascinating essay on this in The Long Shadow by David Reynolds. I know it's a book that I mention a lot. But um, what he says is, the um, for America, the um, uh, memory of the First World War, a war where that was... Um, a real mystery to a great deal of Americans as to why America was involved in the first place. Um, And even though America was fighting for a short period of time, it was an immense trauma with large losses of life. Um, And the um, answer that Roosevelt had to prevent these kinds of engagements in the future was air power. Um, The air power um, that Roosevelt um, proposed however was going to uh, was to create a, a vast air fleet of tens of thousands of aircraft that could either be used by america or could be loaned and lent to um the uh, somebody like britain or france or in, or perhaps even china to resist japan um the um uh, david kennedy writes the president had long since made his own general intentions clear to European leaders and though he was notably less candid with the American people and for that matter aggravatingly unrealistic in his signals to uh, the Europeans in nineteen thirty eight in the wake of the Munich debacle he had privately promised Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain that in the event of war with the dictators he had the industrial resources of the American nation behind him, though so he knew as well as Chamberlain did that formal legal and political obstacles stood to thwart any serious attempt, uh, effort to make good on that promise. Um, at about the same time, meeting secretly at Hyde Park, Hyde Park was uh, Roosevelt's uh, country estate, with the French financier Jean Monnet, Roosevelt sketched an elaborate, even fantastic scheme for evading the American Neutrality Act. In the event of war, Roosevelt suggested... American factories at Detroit and Niagara Falls would ship motors and airframes across the borders of Canada where they could be assembled and flown away as combat-fitted aircraft. Implementing that ploy would violate the presidential oath to enforce the law and would almost surely expose Roosevelt to demands by isolationists for his impeachment. That Roosevelt even entertained such notions is a measure of the desperation to which the isolationist strictures had driven him. Now, it's important to think how this would map into Chamberlain's thinking. Chamberlain, obviously enormously divided, criticised. He made a deal with Hitler and uh, he was extremely naive. But the the reality of Chamberlain as well is that he buys Britain um, nearly an additional year uh, of uh, rearmament time. Chamberlain might well have looked to America Um, and the hope that um, neutrality would um, have been scrapped um, and was probably as keen as uh, Churchill later on would be to see this happen. But um, it is unlikely that Chamberlain, quite an astute negotiator, quite an astute politician despite what's said about him, would realistically have uh, have relied on anything other than uh, British um, arms manufacture at this time, and this um, interaction between Roosevelt and Chamberlain is a very interesting one, as I said previously, so it's Churchill that steals the the limelight in this in this story, um, the churchill uh, Roosevelt relationship. Is the foundation of the, the myth that we have that America and Britain have a, a special relationship, which um, periodically you might say that that exists, but for the most part it really doesn't. In this instance, uh, anyway, um, the relationship between White House and Downing Street um, obviously long predates uh, Churchill, and the kinds of offers which are being made to Downing Street by Roosevelt. Predate Churchill. Now, the fact that the offer um, is has so many obstacles um, in the the U.S. Houses of Congress um, is is kind of, I guess, neither here nor nor there. The fact is that there seem to be uh, immense goodwill. From Roosevelt to Great Britain that wasn't initially mediated through Churchill at all. Um, many of the kind of the Churchill hagiographies that we, we receive is that really um, via Churchill this connection exists. Um, but this doesn't really kind of correspond with that picture entirely. Roosevelt's interest in aircraft is a curious one. Like Roosevelt had obviously during the First World War been the Assistant Secretary of the Navy and um had a kind of um a, an interest in naval matters um, but he was um, a believer in air power um, and thought that um air power would be the the future, uh, and that the production of aircraft by American factories um, would give um, america a, a, a method of enforcing um uh, the Liberal, capitalist, democratic order um, that um, Britain and America are represented around the world, but doing it at arm's length, um, and that um, long, uh, deep penetration bombing raids would be able to, uh, it was believed, strike into enemy heartlands with far fewer um, uh, casualties, and that um, the uh, and that they would be able to do the work. That an entire army uh, could do well the, um, the the calculations about casualties um, were perhaps not entire, not entirely accurate, um, whilst fewer men um, were lost uh, to um, various bomber commands uh, during the war. the u s Army Air Force um, and the um, uh, British bomber command. Into, compared to ground forces, the actual rate of attrition um, was in some instances as high as 50%. Um, so the the um, appalling level of losses in the air um, were as well dwarfed by the vast scale of civilian deaths on the ground. Roosevelt also rather liked the idea that uh, America in 1939, still a country gripped by depression, could experience a manufacturing boom uh, by the production of uh, tens of thousands of aircraft. The actual numbers produced um, initially are fairly dismal. There were 70 B-17 bombers budgeted for in 1940, and only 52 were actually available um, by May 1940 uh, when France is invaded by Germany. And that's telling. Uh, you know, the uh, it, it looks increasingly like much of what Roosevelt was thinking in this period is, is wishful thinking. Um, that um, whilst it would have been nice to be able to prevent war by um, the creation of a vast air armada, the fact
0: Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow.
1: Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel
0: like plush clouds. Yeah.
1: The fact that it simply didn't exist and that uh, when war is actually being fought um, and being fought in its intensity during the Battle of France, uh, there wouldn't have been enough aircraft really to do any damage at all to uh, Germany's cities or Germany's productive capacity or Germany's armed forces. During the Munich crisis, um, Roosevelt says, this kind of war would cost less money, would mean comparatively few casualties, would be more likely to succeed than a traditional war by land and by sea. Um, And on November the 14th, um, at the White House, Roosevelt laid out his plan to develop the American aircraft industry to equip Britain and France and to maintain a 10,000-plane American air force. William Bullitt, one of his uh, ambassadors, um, said, the moral is if you have enough airplanes, you don't have to go to Bechtel's Garden." obviously referencing uh, Chamberlain's uh, failed attempts at shuttle diplomacy with Hitler. Roosevelt continued, had we had this summer 5,000 planes and the capacity immediately to produce 10,000 per year, even though I might have asked Congress for the authority to sell or lend them to countries in Europe, Hitler would not have dared to take the stand he did. And the, the only significant military figure who agreed with him, um, uh, General um, Hap Arnold, said basically, we need aircraft and lots of them and we need them right now. However, there were significant numbers of senior military figures in America, uh, including George Marshall, who did not agree with the president's outlook and believed that uh, military force had to be carefully balanced between um, manpower, artillery, armour, aircraft and uh, naval uh, support. And if this mix was um, balanced correctly, uh, then you had um, a powerful military machine. And I guess what they were trying to say in the uh, politest way possible is that the, in an era of total war, the rather utopian dream of being able to fight Nazi Germany and not put any boots on the ground uh, was rather naive. And it was unlikely ever to be a deterrent because obviously one cannot deter Hitler by having secret meetings with um, Chamberlain. Hitler has to be aware of the deterrent. Roosevelt was unable to uh, create the sort of industrial base in America by 1938 that would have been required to create this kind of war industry and, and the uh, military might that he's hoping for. Anyway, there are a number of problems. Firstly, there is the an isolationist mentality in America, the idea that two oceans are the guarantee you need and that wars in Europe and wars in Asia really have nothing to do with uh, the USA um, and that hopefully they will resolve themselves or they might not even happen and the problem might go away. Um, the um, congressional isolationists are hypervigilant to anything at all that might possibly smack of uh, american internationalism um and there is there are obviously huge budget restraints um the earlier more generous years of the the new deal are long since over and now a more um tightened fiscal um control on the purse strings is there and the thing about uh, the rearmament of this scale is it cannot be done through private enterprise alone. It is about it is a process of mass state spending and the pouring of vast amounts of public money into private coffers in order to, to build aircraft. And it's for these reasons um, that you get fairly measly aircraft numbers by 1940. So the total national defence appropriation in 1940 was $1.3 billion. Uh, and that was a 50% increase over the previous year. But it was only a seventh of the, the federal budget. In January 1940, Roosevelt asked for a 1.8 billion, a 1.8 billion increase um, for 1941. And the and Congress begins to undermine this. Um, obviously, after December 1941, these sorts of sums shoot up. Europeans are pretty nervous about the idea that A, they'll have to part with large sums of gold and dollar reserves, and B, the moment that war is declared anyway, the moment that war actually breaks out with Hitler, the lines of supply from America will be cut off. Um, So, you know, no one would really run a business on that basis, uh, and and, um, European governments are, are very wary of having America as a supplier. So the, uh, by mid 1939, for example, the French and British between them had only purchased about 1,500 aircraft from America. And um, when the war began, um, America was very lightly armed um, and making a tiny contribution to its own um, defence and that of Europe. So when Roosevelt talked of his short-of-war strategy, really what he was talking about was the fact that Congress had clipped the presidencies, the executive swings to such an extent that there was virtually nothing uh, that could be done. And this meant that the threat of war um, was um, continually there, uh, that America could not provide any kind of uh, real or imagined deterrent, and that um, war itself was uh, something that um, the American population by and large had ruled out, Um, and therefore it made actual war in Europe um, that would draw America in eventually more likely. Roosevelt uh, acknowledges that war has begun um, two days later, by the 5th of September. He does that so that the British and French can get all the material that they have ordered um, uh, from America out of American ports. Um, the the moment that um, war is acknowledged in America, those ports shut down. He issued two um, neutrality proclamations and these shut down the entire US arms industry to um, Britain and France. Um, They would not be able to buy uh, as much as an artillery shell. This has a profound effect on Chamberlain's government. Um, Joseph Kennedy, uh, uh, ambassador to Great Britain, Um, said that um, the British officials were, in his words, depressed beyond words uh, and that the, uh, once the Neutrality Act had been invoked and secretly they were hoping it would never happen. Uh, William Bullitt said, It's of course obvious that if the Neutrality Act remains in its present form, France and England will be defeated rapidly. On the 21st of September, Roosevelt calls a special session of Congress um, to consider... Uh, revoking uh, neutrality, um, the announcement of the special session galvanised the isolationists, such as William Borough. um and there were a, uh, a sort of there's a kind of a wave of propaganda um, lurid broadcasts telling um, horror stories of what might happen if America became involved. The famous aviator and fascist sympathiser um, Charles Lindbergh. Um, said, the destiny of this country does not call for our involvement in European wars. One we'll need only glance at the map to see where our true frontiers lie. What more could we ask for than the Atlantic Ocean in the east and the Pacific on the west? An ocean is a formidable barrier, even for modern aircraft. In this, um, uh, in this, he was actually uh, pretty, uh, pretty incorrect, and Roosevelt corrects him in the Arsenals of Democracy" speech uh, the following year. Uh, that other. Um uh, Anti-Semitic, fascist, populist um, uh, father Charles Coughlin um, had, uh, who was one of the, the kind of the great opponents of the New Deal, um, and in his uh, regular weekly radio show, bombards the presidency with um, all sorts of denunciations for even considering the possibility of amending the 1937 Neutrality Act, um, and the the White House is swamped with letters, postcards. Um, telegrams um, demanding no such change. So the debate lasts for six weeks and Congress um, um, sends a revised neutrality bill um, to the White House. Uh, Voting on the bill showed that there had been a kind of a momentous shift um, since um, the New Deal. In the Senate, uh, most of Roosevelt's uh, progressive Republicans on domestic policy, um, Republican allies that is, had um, given up on him. And in the House, Southern Democrats voted 110 to 8 in favour of revision, uh, vividly highlighting the degree to which the President's foreign policies now depended not only on the Liberal coalition that had legislated the New Deal, but on the traditionally conservative Southern core of the party, which was largely hostile to it. So those New Dealers um, were isolationists, but it is the anti-New Dealers that Roosevelt now relies on um, to get the policy, get the revised Neutrality Act through, um, and they are far more willing to take a robust line when it comes to Germany. The revised act lifted the arms embargo and belligerent powers, uh, either side fighting. Though it was very unlikely to be Germany. Um, could now purchase war material, including uh, fighter aircraft and bomber aircraft from America. Um, isolationists still have strength to demand a heavy price, and they restored the 1937 uh, Neutrality Act's cash and carry provision, which meant that Britain and France couldn't get anything on credit, and they had to come and get the war material themselves. Now, it was hoped by isolationists uh, and neutra- uh, neutrality supporters that this um, these provisions would prevent any indication um, going to Germany that they were favouring one side or another, or they were giving additional excessive help to Britain or France. Um, they were looked at these things as being war precipitating incidents. Roosevelt bans American shipping essentially from the Atlantic. Uh, particularly on the tr- on the routes between uh, America and Great Britain, uh, calling these danger zones, and they do uh, everything to prevent the possibility of a shooting war breaking out at sea with Germany, which uh, by mid 1941 is almost precisely what has happened, as Roosevelt strips away these provisions one by one um, and eventually we wind up in a situation by early 1941 where the Lend-Lease Act is in operation. And Roosevelt uh, rather astutely says in December 1939, what worries me is that public opinion over here is patting itself on the back every morning and thanking God for the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. We greatly underestimate the serious implications to our own future. Therefore, my problem is to get the American people to think of conceivable consequences without scaring the American people into thinking that they are going to be dragged into this war. Now, I'm going to be continuing this um, little narrative in over the next couple of weeks or so and looking at Roosevelt during the early stages of the Second World War um, and the development of his relationship with Churchill. Um, so look out for some more of that. Anyway, I hope you found today useful, and if you can do a huge favor, if you can go to the Explaining History iTunes page, um, go to iTunes, put in Explaining History, you'll find us, um, and give us a, a cracking review, that would be really, really good. Um, and I hope you'll um, catch us on the next Explaining History podcast. Bye-bye.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.